Glad to be back uh, hosting the show with you, Charles. It's been so long. I've been in a coma ever since the last episode I did last summer. Uh, what, what's what been going on? <laughs> any, any news? Uh, uh, I, some things. <laughs> everyone's still healthy and uh, the economy's roaring and, uh, um, you know. America's great again. This is an example of speech. All our history broiled in war. Welcome back to Tell Me What to Think. A free from oversight and free of charge, socially distanced and socially networked, unrehearsed and unredacted, details expanded, whistle blow hard, evergreen topical heat wave of an ongoing conversation, turned podcast, in which we discuss politics, global affairs, current events, and anything else that bubbles up from the unmoderated comment section in our brains. We urge you to join us and tell us what you think. To listen to the archives, go to stoneduckmedia.com or tellmewhattothink.com. You can contact us at tmwttpod at gmail.com. I'm producer Pete. You can contact me on Twitter at Bloated Nemesis. And with me, as always, is Charles Minnick, who is on Twitter at green underscore weird, which is spelled W-Y-R-D. This episode, Charles and I talk about his series of insurgent congressional candidate interviews, debrief the Democratic presidential primary, and talk about the rise of fascism during this time of plague. Prepare to get worked up, not worked over. This is Tell Me What to Think. Well, let's let's discuss your series of, of interviews because I'm kind of curious what like you did firsthand interviews. What was there like ten, twelve, something like yeah. that? Um, with real people running for Congress, and I mean. From coast to coast. Yep, from coast to coast. They've had different levels of success so far. Some of them, their stories aren't finished yet. But, and they, you know, they all have different chances or had different chances. Um, For example, even when you talk to him at the time, and I think this is still the case, Chris Armitage was pretty much the only Democrat running, which gives you an advantage. Um so I don't know what what's your what was your kind of top line takeaway from talking to these people? Like, did it change your preconceived notions? Um, well, I guess my biggest takeaway is that uh, they're the ones who are going to be successful or not in pushing progressive and leftist policies and ideas like into Congress and like into the popular culture. You mean they're like um, sort of a front line? Uh, yeah, Based, uh, sort of. Not exactly the front line, because those are the people who show up at protests and uh, volunteer for mutual aid societies. So the most public people are going to yeah. be like AOC, these first term and relatively young Congress people. Because, you know, the news is going to put the camera on the people who are saying something new. Which has always been the rule. Yeah, which could help these people. I mean, it's helped AOC. And it's helped a uh, friend of the show, Hector Asagura, to some extent. I mean, pretty wildly. So, do you think the people you talked to represented progressive politics as you saw it beforehand? Um... Yes. Did anything surprise you about um, stances they took or kind of maybe pasts, like personal histories of theirs or anything like that? Uh, No, I guess it was a pretty expected milieu of the people that I would have expected to uh, be progressives. Like almost all of them had experienced some kind of personal tragedy or seen it with their own eyes and were educated and empathetic people, which led them to, you know, universal and humanitarian policies. And, you know, we've gone into whole episodes in the show why leftism is the most humanitarian approach in Mm -hmm. governance. 
Mm-hmm. No, that, uh, from listening through to them, empathy was, I think, the main connection um, that they all shared. I, I it Even if I they said something that maybe I would disagree with or I wouldn't do it that way or that's whatever... It, it, I, I think every single one, I'm trying to, I don't think anyone, I, I wouldn't say them if, if they came to mind right now, but I don't think any of them appeared like um, ambitious and lacking in empathy. They may no. be ambitious with empathy, but. Right, or, yeah. Or they're in, yeah, but the empathy is a central part of almost everybody's ambition. And, you know, I'm not a journalist. I interviewed the people that I wanted to, I would vote for if I were in the position to do something. Yeah, in those like districts. That. Yeah. Hmm. Did you ever see if anyone was running in, uh, did any Wisconsin names come up when you were going through? Uh, no, I actually wasn't, uh, when we were still doing it, we weren't, I wasn't followed by any uh, leftist or even Democratic politicians in Wisconsin, but I have been subsequently, so maybe we'll uh, reopen this. Okay, cool. Um, Yeah, I only asked because I wasn't really aware of any... um, I mean, I'm aware of some Democratic uh, people challenging in this state, but I, I wasn't at the time, and I still don't think, really aware of anyone that was kind of in the vein of who you were talking to, yeah, um, they're no leftists, certainly. Yeah, I think, I don't know, is that like a, do you think that's something about Wisconsin? Or just coincidence? Um, well, it's not exactly coincidence. Amer- Wisconsin has a, a few which should be like far- leftist strongholds in the state, but they're also set on by our some of our longest standing representatives. Hmm. So, you know who is going to run against uh, Mark Pocan or Gwyn Moore. Well, I was... So, a a theory that comes to mind is that you're not going to have insurgent uh, or uh, establishment-challenging leftist politicians, or, you know, challenging politicians in, in this state... As much, and, and I wonder if this you'd see this in others, it, it, because we're kind of purple. And and regardless of what the actual electorate is, because it's totally skewed by gerrymandering and all that. Um, but we are a battleground state. We are, you know, and, and it feels like just to be a Democrat. Like, if you, over the past few years and some of those, um, over the past decade, Republican like assembly districts and state senate districts and even some of the US house districts it seems like the kind of moderate democrat running in that district is about as radical as you're going to get and they still can't win and i mean and and I mean, you could argue that you need they to don't be win more because radical they're not radical well, but that's a point i guess i guess it's more the perception of them even running with the platform they have, seems radical. Because they just have no, like, not just that they don't have no chance, it's just so, like, especially when they run against some of those more rural Wisconsin Republicans, like, those people, they are way far to the left of some of the people running, and they may not even be that leftist by our standards. Sure, and there are pockets of far leftism up in, you know, the forests of Wisconsin that are just basically sitting on the sidelines. Well, presumably those places have been gerrymandered out of relevancy. Mm-hmm. I mean, because, like, whenever, to what you're saying, whenever there's, like, a, a a statewide election or, like, presidential, you know, something that's the whole state, so you see those maps that aren't broken down by district, but they may be county or something. Um, right. It there's always those pockets. You see them up there in northern parts of northeastern and like uh, Menominee and Ashland and, yeah. and um, uh, Door County. Even not a lot of people there, but you see them. But there is no one from up there really that's not a rabid conservative Republican that represents 
in terms of the U.S. or state districts. No, there's, yeah, nobody radical. You'd think you'd be able to, like, it, it would be fair if, especially like Ashland Bayfield Superior, that definitely seems like you could carve out at least one Democratic district up in the northern area. But, hmm. you know, they've Republicans effed us over. But anyway, that's about Wisconsin. Um, so back to these uh, national people. Um, do you have any updates on any of them since recording? Uh, well, if, unfortunately, my uh, guess rate is pretty terrible, but some of them haven't had their elections yet. So, yeah, and and that's because they've been put off, I, I assume. Most of them would probably be done, well, maybe not now, but soon. Yeah, New Jersey and New York are, what, June, I think, now? Okay. <clears throat> and I guess good news for people like uh, Andam and uh, Lauren that Bernie Sanders is going to be back on the New New York primary ballot. Oh, why is that? Uh, Andrew Yang's campaign sued. To not have him... Have, Wait, you know, the, the people who had dropped out removed from the ballot... Why? Do you know? What's the logic uh, that he had? Well, it was unfair to the people from New York who had donated and invested time sure. and money. Sure. Yeah, I don't really see the need for someone to be off of a ballot once they drop out of a race. It was just to further discourage, you know, the, shall we say, the opposition to the status quo. Like, you know, the people who if not for Bernie, wouldn't go out and vote in the primary. So, you know, yeah. they wouldn't vote for Lauren and Andam and everybody great in New York. Do you think, though, that... See, to me, that doesn't strike me as significant at this point. But New York's primary is so small that, like, a few thousand votes can swing it. That's true. Yeah, even if you had a few people coming out as sort of a protest vote against Biden... That, yeah, that could help one of them. So, what do you think, based on these talks, and then I guess, you know, any other observation you've been making of these types of candidates, um, is there anything that you, it doesn't have to be targeted at a specific one or anything like that, but is there anything that you could see as do's and don'ts going forward, um, say next cycle, or, or if they or people like that were running in, um, like, off-year, uh, more local elections? Um, or do you think there's a difference? Actually, let's start there. Do you think, because almost everyone, I think everyone you talk to is running for U.S. House, right? Mm-hmm. We're all house. Yeah, running for the House representative. Do you think that's similar to if someone like them was running for a state assembly seat? Or is there a distinct difference in how they campaign and what they campaign about. I mean, obviously it'd be more local, but there's these people still talk local politics. Right, it has to be local. They're confined to a very limited constituency. Um, I guess with state politics, you're going even hard up. I think it's a little bit different when you're going for a federal office because you have to split the DNC and the state party. But for a state seat, you have to basically be in accordance with your own state parties, whichever one you're trying to run with. So do you think that's easier to make it through or harder? Um, it can be easier or harder, depending on, you know, your connections and your own personal aptitudes. Yeah, connection seems real big in state yeah. politics, from what I've Incredibly gathered. important. Like, look at that uh, crooked new ticket that uh, John Flora and Hector Osegler in New Jersey are running up against. Yeah, t- t- update the audience about that. Uh, so Hector has seen a good bit of publicity, and their line A approach has uh, gotten messed up a little bit because Bernie Sanders' campaign didn't uh, file the paperwork in New Jersey to be like you know a line ticket with Hector and the other down ballot progressives. But Joe Biden's campaign did for, you know, Albio Sirius and the other establishment candidates. That's 
a thing. <laughs> that's oh, yeah. That's New cool. Jersey for you. But they are like, all... Like, you're reading required. Just pull a lever and vote. Even amongst people in the same party. Yeah. Uh, it reminds me of... um. Oh, jeez. Yeah, there's the one episode of The Wire where the mayor has his, like, pamphlet and has people's pictures on it of, like, the council members that are, like, with him. And it was, like, a you know a whole storyline about someone trying to get on or whatever. Mm-hmm. Oh, wow. Yeah, that's really a thing, especially in those, shall we say, heavily gerrymandered and established party areas. Yeah. Wisconsin's Democratic Party, for instance, is just, shall we say, recently reinvigorated when... With Ben Wexler uh, taking the helm. What is? What do you mean by that? Well, I mean, you remember when, uh, what was the, pro- I can't even remember what we were protesting that. <laughs> that was the, um, the, what's the, what's the word? It's the, it's the laws they were trying to pass after the election, but before the inauguration. Oh, the lame duck session laws. Yeah. Uh, but yeah, and that was uh, his premiere, so to speak, and. Wisconsin politics, because he had just arrived. Yeah, he, um, if I recall, he was, uh, I think he intended on running for the state department chair, uh, chair or head president, whatever it is, um, but he hadn't yet, and yeah, he had just moved back, or he was just about to move back. Mm-hmm. Well, now he's like, what, chair of the party, or? Yeah, he's, whatever that position is, yeah, he's the head of the Wisconsin Democratic Party, yeah. And he yeah. used to be with Move On, I think. Uh, was it Move On? One of the yeah, some one of the big organizations. Hey, I mean, the Karofsky win here was uh, huge. I mean, it's considering that that election was so the election itself, not like the the competition between the candidates, but the actual casting of votes was so contentious. And nationalized, internationalized, really, um, in terms of a news story. And honestly, even without all that, I think she was not the favorite going in, because uh, they don't do a lot of polling, so we can't... I thought, well, I mean, that's the thing with Democrats. They always, I mean, except for terrible years like 2016, but in presidential years, like in the primary and general election, the Democrats win, especially the judges who run in that year. Um, yeah, I suppose that's, so when, I mean, Bradley, or not Bradley, she's a Republican, um, Dallet, I believe, was the last Democrat to win, I think that was in 20, it was after Trump got elected, but it, uh, Is that 2018? 17 or 18, and then there was Neubauer, who lost in 18 or 19. Hmm. No, yeah, Democrat, although, it's not like Democrats win the presidency every time <laughs> obviously but they do better because they do better when more people turn out i mean that's what well, that's really the lesson of all of these elections why voter shaming ultimately yes. doesn't work and all of those ca- tactics are shall we say self-defeating because the goal of every election every political organization should be turn out the votes and you know it's uh it requires like an interesting shall we say customized matrix of uh, tactic strategies and platform for you know whatever constituency you're trying to run in yeah i think um old-fashioned personal charisma helps too which is something that you know how you get that how you get yourself in front of people is you know a big part of politics but uh one thing i was I was really impressed with a good number of the people you interviewed on being, like, I could picture them doing interviews, and I can picture them giving speeches, and they just, a lot of them were uh, charismatic without being, um, you know, like, sociopathic or anything like that. <laughs> or overtly sociopathic, right? Yeah. yeah. Yeah, hey, yeah all, that's uh, high praise for from me for a politician. Right? They all seemed relatively comfortable with their charisma, which is, you know, something else. Yeah, that's that's a way to put it, yeah. Um, and I think the ones that were not as charismatic, that is... I don't know that it was necessarily a lack in um, 
natural charisma from those people. It seemed like it was more inexperience, mm. a little discomfort with um, being doing interviews. I mean, you talk to some of these people pretty early on in their campaigns and their yeah, experience. Yeah, sure. The first person who interviewed Hector. Although he wasn't one who was lacking in charisma. Yeah, that Hector guy was, was cool shit. using it, so... <laughs> um, Alright, so anything else that, like, if you had to uh, write an essay or something um, on advice for insurgent congressional candidates, what would be the thing you learned from this? Hmm. I, you know, I'm still... Uh, I'm putting you on the spot. <laughs> oh man, really put me on the spot for that entire arc. It's like, well... This is the message I have. It's like the primary still isn't over. We still have important candidates out there. So people, even if, shall we say, your favorite presidential candidate is no longer in the race, there's still, you know, avenues of your efforts and energy and resources to put them into good causes. Because if somebody like Hector wins, that would be huge, if not revolutionary in the area of campaign finance or, you know, Chris Armitage out in Armitage out in Washington he would similarly be pretty revolutionary for his stances and, you know, where he's being elected from. So, okay. But I would add to that, if I were to um, to take the thing that I learned, and, you know, we'll again, it's not done yet, we'll see how they actually do, but um, the two that you mentioned are two of the people who uh, are doing pretty well. I mean, they, they seem to have... Um, more momentum behind them. And both of those people from their interviews were willing to say what they believed and to be revolutionary about issues. I mean, I remember <laughs> we were all kind of behind the tell me what to think scenes, uh, shocked by Chris Armitage talking about um, prosecuting United States government officials for war crimes. Yeah. I mean, that is, it, it's, I it's you can't stand up and applaud in a podcast. It just wrecks the audio. <laughs> but I mean, that is as not something you hear even from someone like, I, I don't think I've ever heard Bernie Sanders say that he might think it, but I've never heard him say it. Right. Very few people would be willing to say it. I mean, I've said it, but nobody running for office. Yeah. Would say it. <laughs> but okay. But then, but that forthrightness, I will say, is uh, a good point. Like, the people who were more forthright are actually kind of doing better about better in their elections. And then, you know, be about what you're about and know what you're about is ultimately the lesson for left and progressive candidates. But it has to, importantly, be counterweighted, or maybe even, in a way, um, out outweighed by talking about constituent issues. I remember... Armitage wanted to talk about, and, and if I recall Hector, they want to talk about jobs in their communities. They want to talk how, how climate change changes their communities. It's not mm -hmm. that they don't have empathy for the whole world, but they are representing their voters, or they're trying to, and those voters are going to vote for their own interests. And 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 that is... He, he is not running a campaign on prosecuting Americans for war crimes. Like, that's no. not the center platform. Right. And if you remember, Hector also had the uh, record scratch request in his interview when he said uh, that total asset forfeiture. <laughs> that's still revolutionary. Yeah. And, 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 you know, in a way, there's... You, you can... Uh, you know, he, you wouldn't build your campaign surrounding that, but a talented politician can tie those issues in that might seem a little distant from their voters, from their constituents, to local concerns. Um, and, right. like, especially your... Um, I mean, he didn't even really... Because it was sort of a special interview, but your second interview with Hector, you know, I could imagine when I listened to that being a... In his district, not really knowing anything about banking or you know <laughs> world finance and thinking you know what i think this guy should represent me because i feel like if that stuff gets fixed that would help me yeah uh think globally act locally and that's what, yeah 
Uh, that's a lesson from what? How many elections ago? And a uh, beer I used to sell and drink. <laughs> it, was, it was on there. Well, except it was drink locally, of course. Oh, of Think course. globally, drink locally. Um, anyway, so that's uh, the takeaway from the series of congressional interviews you have done. And a lot of those people are either in primaries or um, will be having their primaries soon. And then hopefully, the you know, be in the general election come November, if that even happens and occurs, which is a separate episode. Let's do a debrief about the presidential primary because that was both a very crazy and extremely to me anticlimactic and not crazy presidential primary it was crazy in that it ended up not really being crazy at all Hmm. like it didn't really matter like all those millions of volunteers and hundreds of millions of dollars were just you know, I guess herding people into uh, the, the same corral. I I think it. I think between. I, I maybe I'm already getting a little bit like uh, two thirty thousand foot with this and predict speculative about the future, but I think Biden's primary win and Trump again. It's his, still not over, so. Until there's until it's the fucking convention is adjourned and fucking oh, whatever yeah. it is. I mean, the primary isn't really over, but yeah, Biden yeah. is no the winner. Yeah, I mean, hey, that'll be a fun episode if that doesn't end up being true. Um, I just wanted to, you know, lay one ground rule for the, the debate. Sure, sure, yeah. Um, no, totally fair. So, but I was gonna say is I think Biden's um, up till now winning the primary and Trump's winning of the um at least the republican primary in 2016 and we could maybe argue his general election win i think both show a really like uh counterintuitive to politics as normal on that state presidential politics as normal um or really big um some maybe like a really big governor or senator race because his campaign didn't spend a lot of money. His campaign didn't have the volunteers. His campaign was... I don't really... To be honest, I'm ha- I have a little time, hard time ra- wrapping my head around why him. And that, I guess, comes from a place of not being a voter for him. But... Even if I try and look at it from a, like, was it purely the goodwill name recognition amongst the Democratic electorate going into the primary, and he just coasted on that? Because why didn't that show up in polls that whole time? Yeah, and the exit polls are off, and I don't know. I re- this whole primary was just terrible for so many different reasons. So, I know, yeah, you've been pretty distraught about it. What... Talk it out. Again, the the ten percent more than ten percent variance in exit polling is would be enough to like warrant further investigation for potential election fraud. But in what in what in like the Super Tuesday like states? Yeah. But I don't know. It's it seems like a lot of people's energies got up. And we, it turned out that it was for basically nothing. And ultimately it wasn't because it led people like, you know, Hector and Chris, who we talked about in our first segment, mm-hmm. to uh, run for office. And that was great. But it was a bit of a lamb for a slaughter thing because Bernie still hasn't, to this day, like endorsed any of the uh, fucking congressional candidates. Like any of the insurgents that he notionally inspired are basically on their own, and that is, uh, yeah, a little disconcerting. 
No, that's a that's I think that's an interesting point because the um in fact I think I've said it in conversations we've had where the regardless of not winning the success both in twenty sixteen and this time and you know, there could be chinks in the armor, but I mean it's if if you were in twenty fourteen and said Bernie Sanders would be this level of national prominence and would um, have had this influence, and, you know, that would be pretty surprising. Um, and so, you know, to look at it, the silver lining and the optimism, but you do bring up a good point. If he's not, as the notional leader of this, if he's not, um, I don't know, is it sticking his neck out there? I mean, is there a cost to him, especially at this point? Uh, seemingly, no. I mean... I can't imagine him ever running for president ever again. He's probably going to keep running for Senate as long as he's able to, but... Because hmm. the thing is, is that my critique of his campaign would be that he had four years to make himself out to be more acceptable to the electorate as at large. Now, does that mean change positions? I don't think it would have to mean that. I mean, if anything, four years actually was good for him because it gave him an opportunity to refine some of his positions. And and I think he did. Like, I think there's a lot that he did that that was a good that was. Well done. What I don't think he did well was the overall tone, the sort of like thesis sentence of the speeches and of some of the debate appearances was divisive, not unifying. And the, the speech after he won Nevada is the... It just didn't cut it for where he was at that, at that point in the race. And I will say, he was doing other appearances around that time that were unifying. Like, I'm not saying he wasn't trying. He he was, but he had to go all in on that. Without, like, you can be unifying, because, um, like, we, we all, like, you see it, I see it, he does this. He, he does, he'll compliment, you know, my friend Joe and stuff like that. Like, he, he right, has that in him. But then he he just like he can't help himself with the, and then we're gonna destroy the party that I'm trying to win right now. It's just like you can't do that then. But you can still say we got to take oil money out. We got to take pharmaceutical insurance. Like you can still kind of attack the root causes of your problem with the party without going after the party. And if I recall, I think it's that Michael Harriet. I'm probably pronouncing that wrong. I know I'm on Twitter. I don't know what... I think he's a journalist and a writer. Um, and dude has... He's the one who does those great threads about, like, African-American history. And he wrote one about what the party means to sort of old-time uh, black voters, particularly in the South. And, and, and why it's hard for um, white leftists to understand that and and we can disagree with like yeah you know there's certainly a yeah but retort to that but i feel like there was something in that and i'm not purely talking about black voters now when i'm going broader with bernie's campaign i think he did a lot better in that department this time around but he just he didn't it just wasn't far enough. And he just had such an uphill battle already, right? I mean, it's he was he was like mountain climbing with weights on his back to do this. And it's like he could have thrown off this one extra weight and made it easier and he just So what was do the it. weight on his back then? Exactly. I from my understanding it was the state parties. Like this this election cycle the DNC knew that they they saw how it played out in 2016 and fixing it at the, 
that the in up in Washington wasn't as efficient or you know nearly so quiet as shall we say having that done at the, in the several states and that's kind of what we saw in in each one of those primaries the state parties in their own way uh complicated the situation hmm. which interesting you know led to you know the <clears throat> debacle with that app in fucking Iowa for instance and yeah and you know I could say here all day it wasn't a fair election and ultimately Bernie did lose but it doesn't really matter if the election I don't know is fair because nobody really expected it I didn't expect this election to be anything close to fair because you know you can't po- poke your finger in the eye of the people who are you know just writing checks and uh, say your time is over and not expect them to respond and <laughs> the most meaningful way that they can. Yeah, I mean, it would take me more to be convinced of the issue of fairness, but I think along the lines of your latter point that regardless of fairness, there's still forces that may be fair or unfair forces. There are institutions, there are individuals, there are just sort of uh mindsets of voters yeah. and mind seems people. to be the hardest part to get around. Yeah, and, and and you know, and then just some you know, cash. Although it's a little hard for me to buy that cash was an issue here. Because yeah, he had the he made a lot of cash. Brightest. Yeah, he broke their he played the finance game and showed that it can be won in a pretty honest way. You know, I think between him making a ton of money with small donors and also with Biden winning with just not that much money. And and I'll, I'll again point out Trump did not... Trump was not the... Um, you know, well, sort he of after he became president, Trump has... And, and the GOP and his campaign have made a ton of money. I mean, they just bring in shit tons of money. But that well, was Trump not was the even, case when he was running in the primary. Well, Trump's election, if you're campaign, if you remember, was even worse than either of those, because the money that he was notionally spending, you know, to further his campaign on, like, media, hospitality, and the things that normally go into that, he was plowing into his own company, so he couldn't, he couldn't possibly be getting, you know, the best services. He was purposefully hamstringing himself, because he didn't expect to win, and it was just a giant corrupt pass-through for him. And, and then he fucking won. Then no, he fucking and, won. and that's so what I'm saying, though, is that breaking rules that we normally expect out of American politics or had previously. Well, and, and that's kind of what I'm saying is that um, they so uh, and there's obviously a whole corruption discussion here with Trump that we're getting into, and I, I'm trying to avoid that a little bit and just talking about funding of elections is that they're kind of showing that a money does not necessarily buy elections, and b you can make money by not or you don't you can make money without taking from the wealthiest and in the biggest checks and i think that these lessons could appeal because the reason most politicians wouldn't want to have more campaign finance reform and i'm also pushing aside the constitutional arguments here because that's A hindrance, but that's also a separate discussion. The big reason politicians wouldn't want to have campaign finance reform is because they are afraid that if they can't take that money, they won't win. But at least when it comes to presidential politics, that's proving to just not be a thing anymore. Like, I would argue even in, like, House seats, like Josh Collins out in Washington basically financed his race like $4 and 20 cents at a time. It was only basically this Corona lockdown that made him uh, fold his campaign up. Um, Yeah. And I would kind of, I I think the local elections have to have, this is actually one thing I've from our previous discussion, previous segment that I did gather from those talks is that, it seemed like they needed to have a minimum amount of money, but mm-hmm. above that had diminishing returns. So you had to be able to 
get yourself around, have some sort of, even if it's one guy or one woman as a campaign manager, like you have to have some sort of staff and you have to ethically pay that person. <laughs> and the, you know, and then, you know, printing up signs, um, Media presence. Yeah, you have to have something, but a lot of it can be done for free. So, like, if you can get interviews, if you can have a social media presence, although, if not trying to call on anyone individually here, but I recall one of your interview subjects was like, I'm, I'm running, or maybe it was two of them, a purely social media campaign, and that struck me as futile, and I would suggest not doing that to people, but it can be an important part of a campaign. Right. There has to be a local organizing basically at its foundation. Yeah. All yeah, right. back to the primary. Uh, the elect, what, with this uh, quarantine, when are we even going to see the Democratic National Convention? Have they decided? Milwaukee is still notionally on, but nobody expects that, right? I, like, I, right think, no, I think no yeah. one's expecting it. The thing I don't get, I mean, first of all, it sucks for us. <laughs> like, let's let's just, like rub our own shoulders for just a second and be like, it kind of sucks for Milwaukee and Wisconsin that we don't get this. Yeah. It could have been, uh, it could have been like (laughs) tragically epic, (laughs) like 68 or something, or it could have been just, you know, a a nice economic boon to the town. You know, it's not like we have, it's like the, it's not like the Olympics where you have to build a billion dollar stadium to host it. Like most of the infrastructure is there. Right? That Milwaukee Convention Center is huge. It would have been big enough for everybody. We could have had a giant kumbaya circle. And and then also in terms of the general election itself, I am of the belief that it would have helped. Well, I mean, it might still happen, I guess. But um, that it would help a, a little bit. Um, because you know that the local t- TV channels and all of that will be talking about it. And I think that's one of the hardest things in Wisconsin is for a democratic national, which is why it was the tragedy of Hillary not coming to Wisconsin is it's hard for, I think democratic national figures, unless you're like already president or something to get uh, PR in the state because so much of our rural uh, media is just either averse to politics or conservative. Right, and adamantly, adamantly against her, which is basically why she, you know, I mean, that was an easy, I mean, I don't agree with the calculation of 2016, but you can understand why she made it. It's like, there's no return on that investment of going to Wisconsin. Like, it's you're at such an uphill battle, like, those monies and time are better spent elsewhere. You think? But again, that was, yeah. it was a symbolic and political mistake. It's certainly symbolic. Like, even just leaving that open for people to say afterwards, kind of. And that's, you know, another lesson that perhaps we should learn is that you have to be willing to face your competitors and your opponents oh, at a certain point. For sure. Like, for sure. hiding from them and uh, doesn't, like, convince anybody that you're, one, going to stand up against them and what they believe in or that you should be the one to do that, you know? Totally. And I think... Um, there was a little lesson in that is that it, it also gives you, like, if you want to be president, you will have to face down domestic opponents and foreign opponents, frankly. Um, and you're going to have to lose a friend, apparently, is the uh, lesson of federal presidential politics. You better be willing to sacrifice somebody you love for this like. <laughs> It's like a, it's like a pact with the devil or something. No, but I was gonna say the um, so like take uh, Bloomberg, Bloomberg, the first time he faces an audience, and he faces the other candidates and a debate moderator, he fucking choked, and then he had one more appearance. He didn't do great in that one either, and he was kaput. Yep. I mean, he had no experience with. I mean, and. You could say, oh, yeah, but, I mean, he uh, he did as well as, say, Elizabeth Warren, but it's like, I don't know, Elizabeth Warren didn't spend a billion dollars of her own money. <laughs> like, I'd say that she did better there, even if the uh, numbers were somewhat close in terms yeah, of actual right. folks. Fucking Andrew Yang and Marion Williamson, but fucking Bloomberg was the real failure of the cycle. Totally, yeah. I mean, I think if you look at... I bet he spent... 
he spent like six hundred million dollars. Yeah. Oh my god. I think was the last year I saw. Yeah. Um. Do you think? And go ahead. He fucked over his uh his campaign staff because he was going to. You pro- promised them to pay a salary and health care through November to keep working for you know Biden and the Democrats, but then he reneged on that promise. Uh, you know, but that's why. So you remember all those articles? Um, I think it was like Ryan Grimm or someone was writing about uh, the Bloomberg campaign, like poaching all of these. Oh yeah, that was an article in the Intercept. I remember that. And it strikes me that that was probably one of the roots of being able to get them was and saying, kind of, making these it, promises. It fucked over all the down ballot progressives and even arguably Bernie's campaign. So that was a key time to fucking get staff. Yeah, he really threw a wrench in there. I don't, I don't believe it was for some purpose to like get I Biden was, elected, but I, I think, think it was, was to just ass. be an asshole. Yeah, it was just inept asshole politics. He was an, a nihilist and uh, a narcissist. So of course <laughs> he wanted to do that. Of course he did. Yep, yep, yep. So who do you think? Um, so in general presidential primaries um, throughout history mark the ends of careers of some people and mark the beginnings of a new chapter in uh, public the public profile of some people um, and, and sometimes it can be um, <laughs> sort okay. of a, a scammy uh, new chapter like um, say Rick Santorum becoming yeah. like a TV personality after winning Iowa and then just Fucking oh, that was sucking. his final form. Or Mike Huckabee. Mike Huckabee, yeah, I guess he was governor, but he was of Arkansas. You know, and then he's been a national figure ever since and fucking over the people on his Florida beachfront. Um, so Wait, who do you think is going to be someone we will hear about for the next decade um, that maybe we wouldn't have otherwise? Um, I'm going to come up with a surprising name for this, but... Uh... He wasn't even involved in the election, but somebody who's kind of been trying to redeem himself and whose name we will hear for another decade is Eric Holder. Okay. Go on. That's an intriguing answer. So Eric Holder, behind the scenes, has been fighting gerrymandering with on the legal front for the Democratic Party. Uh-huh. If you follow Scott Walker, he like can't keep Eric Holder's name out of his mouth because of, you know, how effective his efforts are. Um, yeah, and his get-out-the-vote efforts and the anti-gerrymandering are going to, if the Democrats, you know, obtain a, an electoral advantage and uh, can fight back some of this more aggressive gerrymandering or even gerrymander in their own favor, his efforts are going to be... Uh, the ones lauded. Interesting. Oh, that's a good answer. It was much better than mine. <laughs> uh, Bernie Sanders' presidential career is basically over, unfortunately. Yeah. That was his last hurrah. Yeah. Uh, no, I yeah, think probably that's... Elizabeth Warren's, too. She got third in her own state. Yeah, I will say, I can see Elizabeth Warren maybe making a run for majority or minority, depending on uh, probably minority leader of the party after this. Uh, who knows? She could still be vice president. I mean, we don't know what's going to happen with that. Um, Ooh, that's another interesting bit of a... Uh... All right, well, let's end this segment with a, a VP thing. Do you think there's any... I mean, not... It, it's like... um. I watch these YouTube videos about like speculating what Marvel movies will be like, but they, some of them take leaks and then fold that into their predictions, and then some of them explicitly ignore leaks. And leaks are unreliable anyway. So, given we don't know <laughs> I trust any information in this field, right? <laughs> so, yeah, we we don't know who will be. There hasn't been any sort of reliable leak. There are some names that are bandied about. There is some heavy, heavy, uh, shall we say, politicking behind the scenes. Uh, I can't I've gotten invited to, or I've heard about so many different things, and I've gotten invited to a few. Like, Stacey Abrams is definitely trying to get her name out there in front of as many people as possible, and especially, you know, try to offer olive branches to the left, although I 
pretty sure that ship has sailed while it was uh, taking water on fire. So, do you think... Do you think there is a VP choice that could make a significant difference in shoring up a higher amount of far-left progressive votes? Uh, Nina Turner. Do you think there's someone that he would pick that would do that? No, okay. I don't think so. Okay. I, don't, I don't think there's anybody that Joe Biden would pick that would repair... Like, shall we say, the uh, negative feelings that are festering that would have made, that would have and probably still will make the uh, convention ugly. So speaking of ugly, um, <laughs> the last thing we were going to talk about today was the coronavirus and its ties to, well, you know, we opened up the closet of the coronavirus and we found some, <laughs> we found some Nazi uniforms. Whoa. Right. Okay. So this whole <laughs> coronavirus is like being exploited as an opportunity by authoritarians and fascists to, uh get away with what they want, like Trump and Stephen Miller uh, instituting a ban on all immigration to the United States, uh, Hungary's uh, emergency rule is uh, pretty similar, like all of these authoritarian countries are making their authoritarian grabs, because you can't let a good crisis go to the waste, and under our American version of fascism, that turns into uh, asset consolidation, because what, we've had three rounds of... Uh, fucking uh, stimulus now and all of that is going to companies with you know giant companies that with more money are just going to get even larger and consolidate assets and shall we say stymie development in the market for who knows how long uh as a side question have you gotten your stimulus check <laughs> yes i did because okay. i i get a tax return into my direct deposit account uh, okay so i i don't think i will you don't think you'll get one, or you just think it'll be late? Uh, I don't think I'm going to get one, I'm going to bet. People do not get it, because, or have not gotten it yet, um, because I guess the mail side of it, if you're actually getting a check in the mail, has just been a complete clusterfuck, which is oh, yeah. totally to be expected. I've seen that in my new job. We depend on the mail, and it's just, like, sitting in piles. Like, it'd be faster to put put it on a mule cart and drive it there ourselves. Yeah. <laughs> um, so, so my priors going into this quarantine would be that fascism would be going on the rise in, um, isn't this kind of like a, oh, it's like a shock doctrine type? Yeah, exactly. Naomi Klein's yeah. shock doctrine. The perfect application for it. We've <laughs> yeah. seen it a thousand times before, right? Lesson of history and whatnot. Yeah. Um, and it, do you think that the... So I kind of feel like um, the conservative uh, Trump-led um, administration and his, you know, departments and their department heads would be fuck-ups. They, they can't help but be fuck-ups. But is there a side of this where they... There's no cost to being a fuck-up because it just gives them more opportunities to be fascists. Hmm. Like, are they trying their best or are they not trying their best? And I don't know if that would actually make a difference in their... I think they are trying their best, and this is what their best is. Interesting. It's cartoonishly inept and incredibly terrible at the same time. <laughs> cartoonishly inept. Um, yeah. Oh, and don't forget to clap <laughs> corrupt, too. As corrupt as can be. Well, that's part of the fascism, right? Right. So, what... Um, what more do you do we think 
What can happen next? Or to I look mean, out for, maybe. is Not necessarily to be predictive, um, but... I thought it was going to be the uh, food processing plants, but uh, the city of New Orleans proved me wrong and have started deploying prisoners as their uh, maintenance workers because their career staff was uh, <clears throat> who works for 10.25 an hour were demanding some protective gear and so the city fired all of them and brought in prisoners to uh, move garbage. And I was expecting that we would see uh, prisoners deployed in uh, like these food centers and the industrial plant that are uh, desperate for workers. But, you know, ma- city maintenance workers. New Orleans. I guess I should have expected it there. <laughs> so, huh. um, so, but using prison labor. Yeah, um, prison labor. That's exactly... Yeah. Because the next step of this corona quarantine is that labor is going to become increasingly increasingly valuable and rare. So they're going to have to churn out people to work, which is going to be prisoners. And shall we say, uh, we're, we're seeing it with the unemployed thing, where they're making people uh, show up to work. And if they don't, they lose their unemployment benefits. So can you explain to me, um, tell me what to think of this discrepancy though between labor being in high demand but high unemployment at the same time well it's just dangerous to work right i mean it's the same reason a lot of people who even though they could get essential jobs and perhaps need it would still you know eat beans and rice until uh hopefully this all blows over Hmm. so Okay. So it's that people, uh, some people... The people that, you know, are the most essential are working in usually the worst conditions, like those meat processing plants where you can't, you know, have social distancing, and there's hundreds of people that work there. Yeah, I mean, it's already sort of a... Like, they wear protective gear at the bird's eye plant in Walworth County, and there's still an outbreak there. And it's causing another, well, it's basically causing an outbreak here in the 53511 area code because almost all those workers live here. I was just talking about that uh, with someone yesterday, and I guessed that, I was going to ask you actually about it, and I I just guessed that those people worked in your area code, or lived in your area code. Yeah, because Beloit is where those people live. Yeah. So, um, yeah, I heard the CDC is, uh, is now on their ass. They must not have been doing everything. I mean, but they notionally wear protective gear because, you know, they work with food. So, uh, yeah, if that's not good enough for Corona, then, you know, there's no way that it could be. You'd have to be basically working in, like, uh, you know, those uh, vented rooms for, like, uh, electronic manufacture. Those would probably be safe. So, can you... um... get into more um, detail. Can you explain for someone who may be listening why you are, or I assume are not talking about like safe at home orders when you're talking about fascism being. Yeah. What is fascism and what is not fascism? What is not fascist is making people stay at home in a, you know, in a (laughs) period of a plague. Okay. And uh, a potential global catastrophe because hundreds of thousands of people are, have died and ten and hundreds of thousands of people perhaps could die if we don't do very simple steps. And unfortunately for the petty landlord class and the uh, small merchants, that means that they're losing their livelihood along with the people who work for them and, you know, people who work for minimum wage and somewhere between minimum wage and not quite enough to live off of. So, why... So it's kind of two separate things here. Mm -hmm. I think we do not need to get into a discussion of why keeping people at home during a plague 
is good, not bad. A very simple kind of moral calculation. I think that's, we get it. And if that's there's right. anyone listening who, who doesn't get it, gets it. But why would it not be... And I'm playing devil's advocate here, just so you know. Um, <laughs> why is it not fascist? Because it is a government um, strong-handed is- approach. It's totalitarian. It is restricting literally freedom of movement. Um, not freedom of speech, but freedom of movement, um, freedom of association. And it's coming from executive decisions. But it's not being enforced. Like, it's not when, not like when I drive to work, somebody at the Illinois border is uh, pulling me over at a checkpoint and checking my papers and asking me what I'm doing and where I'm going. These are notionally just public advisory orders. It's not like police are pulling over every car that they see on the road and asking what those people are doing. But some people, I mean, the police are doing some. I mean, they're not... I mean, in Gallup, there's certainly been that case. The governor basically closed off the city because of a terrible outbreak there. And that does... And it is fertile ground for people who are trying to mislead others to say that's fascist. And it is perhaps authoritarian, but... It's, I don't know. Well, okay. This isn't, like, like the virus, this shit isn't discriminating. It will hit everybody. In fact, it's hitting, you know, people of color and poor people the hardest. Yeah, and I would actually say that the, along those lines, the safe-at-home orders and that type of um, executive action going on right now are, even at their most draconian, are not targeted against some sort of scapegoat. No, I, I notionally that would be one test. Notionally we're doing all this to save the people who are arguing about it the most. <laughs> I, that's a good fucking point. Cuz the people who are staying at home, well there's two there's two classes. So they're the people that so we're the just people referencing. Who, yeah, the petty merchant class who have to deal with hundreds if not thousands of people who would almost certainly get it, and very old conservatives who, if they get it, will almost certainly die. Well, what I was going to say is there's also, though, there's a group of poor people who are being harmed. I'm not saying more so than necessarily the disease, but there's poor people who have essential jobs, but there's also poor people who have inessential or unessential, non-essential, non-essential yeah, jobs. non-essential jobs. Um, a lot of your, I mean, I, I was just yeah, talking yesterday dirty. about imagine, um, like Las Vegas right now. I haven't read any news reports, but a huge amount is a service sector that work in casinos that are shut down. And I mean, I can't even fathom right. how thirty-three million people on unemployment. Did you see that? I mean, I don't really like the New York Times, but did you see that cover the other day? No, no. it was like a comparison. Like, it showed uh, the job losses in, like, or the tech bubble and the financial crisis, and they seemed prominent underneath their headline. And then <clears throat> the line had to go, like, all halfway down below the fold for the current job losses and their huh. scale. Jesus. Yeah, so, and that's part of the reason why the people, these governors are trying to push people off of unemployment, because that... Is as terrible as it looks, and is perhaps more terrible than it looks. I would say, but we haven't really started seeing the effects of that, and here's hoping we don't see what could be the worst. Um, okay, the last thing I want to ask about um, in terms of fascism and the coronavirus, and if this keeps going on and things keep getting worse, we will come back to it another day. Um, but another discussion I was having yesterday is about the the markets and their reaction to this and how they've been doing a lot better over the past, I don't know if it's been a month now that they've been more or less going up as far as I understand. Sure. So two questions. One, stimulus is worth one. Can you explain why high unemployment does not crater the market? And two, can you, if you have been, uh, paying attention, update us on your fascist index and how that's been doing. 
I guess I can answer the second question first. No, I suddenly have a full-time job, and okay. I haven't been keeping track of it as much as I have. I Fair enough. will. I'll uh, reassemble that data and be able to report on it perhaps next time we record an episode. Sure. Uh, and uh, the first question. Um, how? Why doesn't unemployment... Okay, so it was pointed, okay, so out, it was pointed out to me that the- unemployment numbers came out, they were astronomically mm-hmm. high, and it, it didn't destroy the market. the market. Yeah, Because of, well, the three stimuluses and the special unemployment that Congress passed at the beginning of all of this, that $600 a week and, you know, waiving certain restrictions on unemployment are keeping that consumer spending alive. And I've seen it. Like, people are ordering off of Amazon and eBay like mad, especially those people who are trapped at home with their kids and uh, need books to teach them out of. Uh-huh. But that's... And remember, the stock market is only vaguely and tenuously connected to the real economy, and yeah. Yeah. most of those three stimuluses have been applied directly at keeping giant companies and even, you know, the petty bourgeoisie and their small companies afloat during all of this. So, and, and along those lines, this was the answer I gave. Let's see if you, you think it's right. Um, a lot of the unemployment is not coming from your, like, Fortune 500, your Dow Jones Index companies. A no, lot of the no. unemployment is coming from small and medium restaurants and, you know, things that are not being publicly traded. Right, small companies. Because, like, a lot of the Fortune 500 companies, all the, most of their payroll is uh, working from home. And probably arguably more efficiently than they were working from the office. And again, that's one of the, one of the things that we're going to have to, yeah, we're going to have to look at uh, what work is in the wake of all of this. But uh, yeah, and that's you know, small cap businesses like hundred employees or less are where people uh, got unemployed. Like all those restaurants that were notionally supposed to uh, support buy local are all closed. So people are left with like Amazon and Walmart. Destroy the myth that will break our chains. Break your chains!